What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ding, 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 Okay, my mom's side of the family has this little song that we sing to kids. And I remember when my youngest cousin, Jesse, was tiny, like maybe nine months old, somebody sat her on a blanket and did the ding ding song. And this wet-mouthed, grinning kid starts dancing, like really dancing. And all the women are freaking out because look at this tiny thing breaking it down. I was a teenager then, but I was legitimately taken aback. Like, how does this brand new, soft little person know how to do that already? She doesn't know any words yet. She can't walk. She's like a cheese curd with arms and legs. So where did she learn how to dance? And why does she do it when we sing the Tinkatink song? Why, indeed, does music animate you or me? Why do we toe tap or chair dance or just nod along while typing? I'm Dessa. You're listening to Deeply Human. And in less than half an hour, you are going to have a basic understanding of why people dance. So get ready to impress everyone at the next rave with your shouted explanation. Oh, God. When you hear music that you like, there's a chill that starts from your head. It goes all the way down to your feet. Then it comes back up the other side. And so that chill, that feeling, you just take it and ride that right into the movement. Okay. But then if you are fortunate, you will experience that point where you just completely leave your body. Everything gets blurry. I'll see like um, kind of like an orange light. Sometimes it's silver. And then it's like I'm at another location in the room, and then I'm watching myself dance. And that's the feeling that every dancer wants. You know, like you want that feeling. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's the best thing that's happened all year. Darian Parker is a dancer and instructor with Kumbe Center for African Diaspora Dance in New York. And he is dancing, like, 100% of the time. Yeah, even if I'm not teaching or performing, I'm always dancing in my room or in my head. (laughs) I'm always making up choreography or imagining myself doing something or... Yeah. Wait, are you saying that like in the way that I might have a song stuck in my head, you might have a dance stuck in your head? Oh yeah, all the time. Darian may pose a particularly intense example, but there's neuroscientific evidence that all human brains are inclined to move when we listen to music. 
indeed when people are simply listening to music and yeah, not moving their body, that's still in their brain, we see that, that there's motor activation when they listen to music. Our motor cortex becomes activated. So that's the part of the brain that is responsible for the planning, control and execution of voluntary movements. So even if we do not move, we are inclined to move. Our brain wants to move. That's Edith van Dijk. She studies the way that people interact with music at Ghent University in Belgium. And her account of our brains dancing in our heads reminds me of like an office space when a good song comes on and everybody's dancing in their chairs. It was just this automatic urge to move. And Edith says that our ability to process music might be built in, just like languages. So there's something in our brain that is there naturally that makes us respond to music, but so also in a bodily way, also moving to music. There's evidence of a music acquisition module in our brains. Research indicates that infants, as per the example of baby Jesse, move to beats well before they're a year old, which seems to suggest it's innate. We're predisposed to move to music. On a personal timescale, you probably made your first dance move before you can remember it. And on an anthropological timescale, Edith says that dancing most likely started with our species, Homo sapiens, as opposed to with other earlier hominids. And dancing has likely been instrumental in binding us to one another. On the long term, actually, something that has been in dance at all times uh, in our history is uh, the social aspect. So uh, the moving together can be regarded as sort of social glue. You increase your social bonding. Take, for example, a rain dance. Probably there were a lot of people in communities who believed that when times were hard and there wasn't a lot of rain and crops were going to fail, that when you were dancing to the gods, that it would start to rain. Some people might have believed that, but it initially started from keeping the group together because in hard times, when there's not enough food, there might be starvation, which can lead to fights, to wars, and so on. So it is key to keep the group together, to bear all of this together. Social cohesion, motor cortex activation. I admit that I sort of thought an evolutionary explanation of dance was going to be mostly about sex. Like, you know that whole thing, dance is a vertical expression of a horizontal desire? That stuff. Ah, of course, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, okay, when you dance, it's a sexual display of fitness. You show that you're physically fit, but also that you have a good working brain because you can conceptualize about things, you understand the music. When you have good feeling of rhythm, you could see it like that. Moving in sync and with style may be the mark of a good mate. Okay, no innuendo implied, but now let's turn back to our dancer, Darian. His focus is on West African traditions, where specific dances are integral to the culture. So when you talk about dance, West African dance as it's done in West Africa, you're talking about things that pretty much mark every aspect of life. You know, so if someone passes away... If there's a wedding, if there's a birth of a child, if there's an initiation ceremony for a young girl or for a young boy, pretty much all aspects of life. The dance is very much an articulation of the philosophical system, you know, of the people. What, can you explain that? What does that mean? 
A dance that I'm teaching now is a traditional dance for the Malinke people. And this is a dance in which uh, young girls mark their rite of passage into womanhood. So there's one movement done, for instance, in which you reach to the sky, you come into your body, and then you put your arms behind you, and you keep doing that in repetition. Reach to the sky, come into your body, put your arms behind you. So essentially what you're communicating is, I take blessings from God, I bring them into my body, and then I scatter them throughout the earth, and then I take what I've scattered throughout the earth, I bring them into my body, and then I give it back as an offering unto God. And the Malinke people believe in that kind of constant flow between kind of the ethereal, the personal, and then the rest of society. So yeah, in that one movement, you kind of express that aspect of Malinke philosophy. In West African traditions, the body's movement is also the product of a really tight relationship between the dancers and the musicians who play with them. Like, I've heard drummers bragging, like, did you see the way I made him rip his own shirt? Okay, that does not refer to a dancer who, like, tears his shirt down the middle like some cheesy Adonis. It's essentially about dancing a shirt into pieces. So if a drummer notices that a particular move seems to strain a dancer's garment, the drummer will get the dancer to do it again and again and with more and more intensity until the fabric just can't hold. Drummers are very, very observant, skilled people, and they're like magicians. And I remember one time I was dancing to Mama D. Keita, who is uh, known as like the preeminent master drummer of Guinean dance, God rest his soul. But I had the privilege of dancing in a class where he was playing the lead. And he had two drums strapped together, and he was playing them at the same time. And I will never forget this, the way his eyes were in tuned to what my body was doing. And it was the first time in my life that I have ever felt weightless. Like, I was doing all these complicated things, but I didn't feel anything. He was making my body move. Does it feel like being marionetted almost? Yeah, it kind of does feel like being marionetted, but it's actually something even more transcendent than that. It's like you feel nothing. <laughs> the drummers can move the dancers, and it's a two-way street. The dancers can influence the drummer's performance too. The goal in West African dance, or the styles that I do, is to have a perfect connection with the music and the live musicians. There has to be kind of like perfect synchronicity between you and the musicians. That conversation has to be fluid. When that is the case, you will feel a physical kind of healing of your body. When I was in my early 20s, I helped teach a salsa class, which makes me sound like a way better dancer than I am. Essentially, I would just show up early and learn the moves from Don, the real instructor, so that he could demonstrate them to the class with the help of a female lead. And Don was this gay dude who, by his own description, would go dancing, flaming like butane. And so to make it look like we had chemistry when we danced in front of an audience, he'd sometimes whisper threats. Like, um, he would say, 
I'm going to cut you, (laughs) the nader of a dip. And I'd giggle, and that would sell our rapport to the crowd. Anyway, I remember struggling to get this really flashy spin. It was a fast double turn that involved ducking under the dude's arm, and it was awesome, and it was super hard. I asked Don to slow it down. I'm real cerebral, and I wanted to talk through each step one by one. And he just flatly refused. You can't learn it that way, he said. You gotta feel it. Just let the music guide you. Close your eyes and humble your mind to your body. How old were you when you started performing as a musician in dance classes? 19 when I played dance for a dance studio. Do you remember the first day? No. (laughs) And what instrument did you play? Piano. And what kind of stuff did you play on the piano? Dance teacher was a French lady. She liked that Greek movie, um, Zorba the Greek, so she got fixated. Uh, So I played different versions of Zorba the Greek. That is Craig Harris. He's loved music and rhythm since he was a kid. He studied composition. And even though he grew up to pursue a totally different career path, he always wrote music for dance on the side. But then something started to change in Craig's body. In around 2006 or 2005, I had weird imbalance and strange kind of heavy body feeling. And it was a mystery that no one could diagnose. It's like everything has weights on it. My body feels a little heavier, so anything you do is a little harder, a little more work. There was also a marked stiffness, a sense of rigidity. It'd be like um, if you were really cold. Then a tremor in his left hand. Craig went back to the doctor. He's a German doctor, and he's very straightforward. He said, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I'm afraid you have Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is a progressive nervous system disorder that affects movement. And it can make everyday motions difficult. People with Parkinson's might not swing their arms when they walk or have difficulty writing or making facial expressions. Movement can be especially difficult to initiate. In late-stage Parkinson's, people can experience freezing, rendering someone temporarily unable to move or walk at all. People sometimes describe it as feeling glued to the floor. There's no cure, but medication can help treat Parkinson's symptoms, and rhythm can too. Music can actually help people lock into a more natural walking gait, taking longer, more confident steps. There's even a new smartphone app that uses ankle sensors to collect data on the gait of Parkinson's patients and then plays music at a tempo designed to keep them moving smoothly. Craig enrolled in a dance class designed for people with Parkinson's disease. I talked to one of Craig's instructors, Maria Walsh, from Motion Pacific Dance, and she said that if a dancer freezes mid-step in class, introducing a little bit of rhythm can help break the hold. She'll have them hum a little rhythm, then try to stomp it, and eventually walk to it again. Craig doesn't suffer from freezing, but he does notice that dance eases his symptoms. I moved a little easier and lighter, and I felt a little lighter, psychologically, but physically too. Dance is both therapy and a way to elevate my spirits. It seems to have the effect of making things more fluid physically and mentally for me. And rhythm holds the same magnetism for him that it did as a teenager. Well, it feels like pretty much the same as it does when you don't have Parkinson's. You know, it just feels good. 
So how exactly do music and dance therapy help people with conditions like Parkinson's? Back to Edith, our Belgian researcher, for a bit of neuroscience. Keeping the beat is believed to be hardwired in our brain too. So we actually see that our neurons, uh, the connections in our brain, that they can synchronize their firing to musical beats. When we move, we tend to synchronize in certain ways to music. We tend to connect to the sounds and to the vibrations and so on. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Research suggests that when we listen to a song, some of our brainwaves can actually sync to the tempo. Our synapses fire in time with the music. Okay, a quick reminder here that the phrase, it's all just vibrations, man, is not allowed on this program. If all of a person's brainwaves were perfectly aligned, it wouldn't mean they were enlightened. It could mean that they're having a seizure. So let's just keep it empirical. But yes, it is pretty awesome that our brain waves are believed to align with what's on the stereo. And that neurological alignment may be part of what prompts us to dance. The electrical impulses passing through the parts of our brain responsible for movement are already dialed into the tempo. Which may be why it is really challenging to dance out of sync with the beat. I'm not dancing to the music. I can sometimes jump in rhythm with the music, I can go against it. I can completely forget about the music and do something else. Is it difficult to avoid the temptation to dance to beat just because that's kind of maybe naturally what we're inclined to do? Yeah, it's interesting. I I think it is. I think it takes training and retraining to learn to do that. This is Vangeline. She specializes in a form of dance called buto. Buto is an art form that came from Japan in the 1950s. It's an avant-garde art form, and it's kind of like the dance of the subconscious exploration of the unconscious. Buto is sometimes called the dance of darkness, and it is unlike any dance you've ever seen. Tatsumi Hijikata, one of the choreographers who created Buto, would sometimes fast before performances for a dramatic, emaciated look. He and other dancers would often cover their bodies in bone-white paint before taking stage. I'd only run across Buto once, years ago, having accidentally stumbled across a YouTube link. And in it, the body of a tall, hairless man, painted lunar white, falls down a stone staircase. He pieces himself back together at the bottom, moving with so many tightly controlled, isolated movements. It's as if there were tiny rotors spinning in each joint. He doesn't look human. He looks like a first-failed hybrid of machine and man. 
like able to suffer but not survive. And one gets the sense that the kind thing to do would be to find a rock and put the thing out of its misery. But also that you'd never be able to summon the grit to do it yourself. Buto, it's, it's just intense, man. The Fosse was purely Japanese, then it moved to Europe in the 70s, and then it exploded all over the world. Vangeline is from France, but she studied in Japan and Mexico. When I asked about the aesthetic of Buto, it seemed like I just sort of missed the point. It's not so much about how it looks as how it feels. So if you're watching a Buto performance, probably you, you're having some kind of... A, People have very violent response. They hate it, they love it. They go into a deep trance. They relax. Some people leave and are really offended. Like, I think when it began, people were fainting when they were watching Buto. So there's that kind of visceral response from the body when you actually watch it. Buto often moves faster or slower than the way we do in our normal lives. And it incorporates some gestures and expressions that aren't really allowed in public. And when you think about it, we've got a pretty narrow band of gestures and expressions that are allowed in public. Like, if a person blinks too frequently, that might be enough to weird you out, let alone twisting or bending their torso or curling and unfurling their toes. There is a lot that's just off-limits. All day long, we watch people move in a certain way, in the way that society has kind of taught us to move. Walking down the street, like right now we're talking to each other, we're standing in a specific way. So if I start doing movements <laughs> that are a little bit strange or different or that are considered scary or, or possibly sexual or, you know, outside of the realm of what's socially acceptable, then that immediately provokes the viewer. So there's that aspect to Bhutto of that the unconsciousness of the body brings types of movement that we're not really accustomed to seeing in public. I went to Vangeline's studio to try it for myself. It's a single room in Brooklyn in a building near the train. Soft rubber mats on the floor fit together like puzzle pieces, and a sign on the door says no shoes. Okay, full disclosure. I find Vangeline almost pathologically likable. You will hear that in my voice while we are dancing, and I am not sorry. She is just so likable. And you can totally use a mirror because it's there. Uh, yeah, yeah. The mirror is awesome. Is that helpful or is that distracting because it activates vanity? I like the mirror. Vanity is good. Is it? Why not? At first, Vangeline said I could move any way I wanted. We were just going to experiment with rhythm. Okay, so the first one is you just try to move with a beat, anything. Now we're going to try to move in against the beat. No, because it's hard. It's really hard. Man, it is so hard. It's like, pat your head and rub your tummy hard. Your body just does not want to do it. Also, it became clear how impoverished my own inventory of movements is. I was reusing moves already, like half a minute in. But Vangeline was doing all sorts of stuff. Simple steps to like zombie vibes. You can have very tiny tremors in movement that in Japanese they call yuragi, faint, soft fluctuations, like something's passing through your face, one little movement of your fingertip. And then you can go from macro to micro, and you can go from the very explosive to total stillness. I'm not sure I would have been bold enough to try Buto with just anyone. 
But Vangeline was so compassionate and also really smart, she made me feel comfortable enough to risk looking foolish. And if Butoh's aim is to invite the full scope of our humanity to the dance, well, fear and foolishness, they're surely part of it. There was also just a joy contagion. Vangeline is electrified by Butoh, and I was near enough to catch some sparks. Yes, exactly. You did Butoh. <laughs> that was so much fun. Yay, thank you so much. Yes, the effort it takes to dance against the beat in a form like Butoh is evidence of just how sensitive we are to rhythm. We are primed for music. So, for instance, just nature sounds or sounds on the streets or something can become musical to you. That, of course, was Edith again. I make my living as a musician, and when I'm in the van with my band and we're stopped at a red light waiting to make a turn, I have noticed on more than one occasion that all of us are, like, grooving to the clicking of the turn signal. Edith says there's another theory about why we're compelled to dance, one that's totally different from anything we've heard so far, and it has to do with our appetite for control. Well, there is a thing called agency. That's um, a theoretical idea about the fact that when you feel in control of things, it makes you feel good. It's uh, motivating, it's fun. So you're kind of imitating the music, but it can also feel as if you are creating it because you're dancing more strongly, fiercely, and so on. Yeah, that's something you can clearly have when you're listening to music and you play the, the musical director. That sense of agency all over. So you act as if you are making the music yourself, which feels awesome. What do you mean when you act as the musical director? Are you talking about like air guitar? Uh, yeah, I, I was talking about like a director of a symphonic orchestra, but yeah, air guitar is exactly the same, of course. Yeah. For all her knowledge about the complex neurological and psychological underpinnings of dance, Edith has a pretty simple takeaway message. We should all dance more. People who think that it's just some pastime are so wrong because it's much more than that and it can help us in so many ways. I sort of dance almost every morning. When my kids are up, everybody's downstairs. I usually shower a little bit later than the rest. I put on my music and I dance in the bathroom and I, I usually come down for breakfast in, in a way more positive state than when I got up. If we can all get over our self-consciousness, dancing just feels good. And we do it because it connects us to one another, like social glue. We sometimes dance because it's sexy and proves we are too. And dancing has become folded into our big cultural rituals. The first slow dance at weddings, ringed by wet-eyed spectators. The waltz at a quinceanera. The new dresses and borrowed car for prom. The doofy conga line at a work party that started ironic and ends up awesome. We dance because our bodies are built to move to music. And maybe also because shredding an air guitar solo feels rad. Well, you know that end of program sound as well as I do. But we cannot shut down this show about music and dance without a killer dance jam. We used to call that stuff boots and pants music when I was a kid. Because, you know, boots and pants, boots and pants, boots and pants. Okay, we are not technically allowed to use commercial music on this program, but that will not stop us. I hit up my friend Laserbeak to ask if he could hook me up with a dink-a-dink dance remix. And oh my goodness, did Beak's a legend god come through. <laughs> hey! 
Come on, are you hearing this? This is gonna own the club circuit, Mallorca to Miami. Bob of the summer, guaranteed. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. And it's hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. This one's for you, baby Jesse. I just wanna see you dance. On the next Deeply Human, why is the human animal modest? We're so modest, in fact, that we can be reluctant to undress even to save our own lives, say, in the case of exposure to a biotoxin. Join me next time to find out why you are not naked, and neither am I.